The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52.13 is where our passage starts today. This is a good example of where chapter divisions don't seem to have fallen in exactly the right spot. So I think the chapter starts in Isaiah 52.13. That's where our this song, servant song, begins. Most of us coming into the room have heard of Isaiah 53. Well, it's really Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And that's what we're going to be looking at here over the next several weeks. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Who's talking? God. Not just because it's God's word, he's always talking, but, but specifically it's in his voice. It's not in Isaiah's voice. God is declaring, my servant shall act wisely. And God's going to talk for the first three verses, and then he talks in the last two verses of chapter 53. And then in the middle, the prophet's going to be talking. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, I think that's at you, O Israel, in the midst of their exile, astonished that how sinful they were, that they were in their sin, and Yahweh had kicked them out of the land. As many were astonished at you, so too... His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. That is a lot of pain. That's a lot of bruising. That's a lot of striking. To get someone beyond what even looks human. His form was beyond that of the children of mankind. To what end? So shall he sprinkle, like a priest bringing cleansing, many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. Those on the outside who never had the Old Testament, who never had the Word of God, the highest leaders among men will all of a sudden see. That which they have never heard, they're going to understand. He's the king. And yet, among Isaiah's peers, he begins to talk in chapter 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant. 
This arm of God, who takes the form of a human, grew up before Yahweh like the smallest of things, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Father, open your word to us. Help us have hearts that celebrate rather than count as foolish the cross. Through Jesus I pray. Amen. Isaiah 53. I just want to open it up here. When you come into this classroom and classroom, that's normal to me. Study school class. And you no, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53. What's already there? Like, what are you bringing to the table? I'm uh, very much recognizing that many of you, this is not your first time reading this chapter. And so, what are you bringing into here that you already know about this chapter? Let's just, just raise some hands and share. Basic observations, and your observations don't have to be limited to the um, six verses that I read. It can stretch all the way down to the end of Isaiah 53. What are you bringing in here? What's this about? What do you know about this unit of scripture? How it's used elsewhere? Or how you've used it? Anything? Yes? Um, when I've heard that his crucifixion and, and that death so hard was unrecognizable to me, like it says, when the disciples saw him from the boat, he was on the beach after he was resurrected, does that mean it was one reason why they didn't recognize him right away? Okay. So the possibility that some of that marring continued on even after his resurrection. He meets Thomas. Thomas doesn't believe it's Jesus, and what does Jesus say, say to Thomas? Put your hands in my holes. So there's, there's, we, we may not often think of Jesus in his resurrected state that way, but there's at least some, some elements that are hanging over from this unbelievably brutal crucifixion. Now, even in talking like you just had, you did make a statement, and I made a statement already, that we're assuming this is talking about someone we all know, or at least I pray most of us do. That it's talking about Jesus, right? That this is, this is 700 years before Jesus is even on earth. God using Isaiah to portray for us the most graphic, vivid, descriptive picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. We'll see that Any, from anywhere else in the Old Testament. In the initial three-fourths of our Bible... This is the clearest unpacking of what Jesus does in his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. What else? Deborah. Uh, he talks about him as the Lamb of God. Okay. Well, maybe he doesn't say Lamb of God, but the Lamb 
right? And then we know it does at that distance. You pull it away like that, and you can create a distance as well. I don't know how much, maybe you could tell us how many other spaces in the Old Testament refers to the same cycle it's anticipated in Leviticus, right? It's anticipated in the book of Exodus with the Passover. Yeah. And yet, John chapter 2, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how, how John the Baptist is thinking about his cousin, Jesus. He is the Lamb who will stand as the substitute. And that Lamb himself has to be unblemished. Because there has to be a, a reality about this lamb that it's very clear this lamb is not dying because the lamb is marred, the lamb is broken, the lamb is itself weak. Rather, it's clean and perfect, and yet it has all of a sudden me and my uncleanness, I'm declaring it over this creature. And you see in verse 7... He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so too this Messiah. That was the way he went about his suffering, like a lamb. And that, that serves us in understanding his role. Other other. It's the foretelling of the uh, unrecognized, unknown Messiah, um, that he would be largely missed by his own people. Mm. That's that's so right. We're gonna we're gonna see that all over. It's I mean it starts from look at verse two. He grew up before the Lord like a young plant. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Or we get all the way down to um, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, all his peers, the Jews around him, who considered that he was actually cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people. They didn't recognize his mission. They didn't recognize his identity. And this text, more clearly than any other, sets us up for understanding why when we read the New Testament, the Jews of the first century respond to Jesus much like all the Jews of the Old Testament responded to the prophets with rejection. Brother Rick? Uh, John, in chapter 12, uh, cites this passage as he comments on how widespread unbelief was in the presence of many signs to Jesus. Even in the face of many signs, they did not believe John kind of triumphantly uh, points to this unbelief as the fulfillment of the prophecy. Yeah, so we're in John chapter 12, we're going to see him quote Isaiah 53:1. Who's believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Question. Well, 
to all these Jews. And John in chapter 12 is going to say they didn't believe in light of all the signs. And then he adds one more fulfillment. He goes all the way back to Isaiah 6. This is to fulfill what Isaiah declared, seeing you will not see, hearing you will not hear. And then we get that amazing comment. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory. That, really? That the one who was in Isaiah 53, seated on the throne, I'm sorry, Isaiah 6, seated on the throne, high and lifted up, that was the glory of Jesus? That's how John talks about it in John chapter 12. And the people of his day saw, but they didn't see. And they didn't believe. Even in light of all the miracles, all the wonders that he was doing. There's other hands. Um, I was shocked the first time I heard <coughs> The Pleasures of God by Pastor John when he took out uh, verse 10 that Yahweh was pleased question that was a shock to his Just look at verse 10 of chapter 12. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. What kinds of things does God desire? Or what's his pleasure? And one of the things that he desired was to crush his son. That, that's arrested. That's, uh, how, do, how do I fit that into a framework where this was part of God's pleasure, part of his will, part of his purpose? In accordance with his plan, that the cross didn't happen as um, against his purpose, but in alignment with his purpose. And yet it was filled with sinful activity. Who killed the Christ? We're going to see it when we go there. Acts chapter 4. Who killed the Christ? Was it Herod? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it the Jews of Jesus' day? Yes. All of whom were doing what God's purpose and foreknowledge had predestined to occur. Because God's desire was ultimately to kill his son. And yet, that wasn't the ultimate end. Right? What else are we going to see? It, it moves on. This one, Yahweh, who puts his own son, the servant savior, to grief, if he will but serve as an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. So he dies on an altar... 
And then after, if he'll but die on an altar under the will of God, not my will, yours be done, the one who died on the altar will see offspring. What does that necessitate? Resurrection. And this was also the desire of God. And, and the opportunity to secure a reward for his son made up of a community of people was actually only possible through this death. In 4 through 6, it's just as explicit as can be. He's not dying because he was bad. He's dying because we were bad. He's dying for our transgressions, our iniquities. And then the beauty comes culminating in verse 11 when it says, By his own knowledge, this righteous servant will make many righteous. So not only does he bear our iniquity, he gives us his righteousness. It's unbelievable. This great exchange that Isaiah himself is anticipating. But this is just an observation I've never seen before. Verse 6. I've always seen that just stand alone. All, we like, all of us like sheep have gone astray. But it's in the context of Christ being the sacrificial lamb, the perfect lamb, and and and, uh, and we are but sheep. I mean, there is a sense in which we don't see ourselves as sheep and as imperfect sheep. Uh, it's like the Jewish people couldn't see their own sinfulness. They were, and, and yet Christ identified with them so much that he became the sacrificial lamb, but he also became one of us, man. I, maybe that makes no sense, but it, it, to me it says that's not a standalone kind of throwaway line, that's a, that's a big deal that ties it all together for me. The you fact know, that it's not only that he's a lamb, it's that we were like sheep. And he, it's full identification for him to satisfy the wrath of God against us. Full identification. I've been listening to a lot of Jewish testimonials on YouTube where they're interviewing people and about how they found the Lord. And um, many of them come back to these verses just really moves me that God is still speaking today to the Jews with Isaiah and um, they're open to Isaiah because it's from their book mm. and um, it's uh, he's still working today these words are still being used to help some Jews that are living blind to, to Jesus see him and, and come to him I love it, I love it so we just see God using texts like Isaiah 53 to do gospelizing work in the hearts of Jews today, where all of a sudden they meet their Messiah in this book. When they recognize, I don't know how else to read this faithfully, other than that Isaiah is identifying those of Jewish descent 
as the sheep who've gone astray, and then there's one who represents them, and that's what Jesus does. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. I think it just popped into my head because Pastor um, was just talking about uh, sacrificing your child to children to idols last week. Mm -hmm. And the universality of the fact that God was pleased to crush him, but it wasn't, he wouldn't have been pleased if Christ hadn't volunteered to be crushed. The universality of the fact that God lauds people giving up themselves for somebody else. You know, Christ says, what's the highest thing you can do for somebody else is to die for them. Mm -hmm. But he is totally and completely revolted by one of us sacrificing somebody else for us. But he's pleased by somebody else sacrificing themselves for us. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the will of, of the person being sacrificed that makes it pleasing to God. Mm. The that that's there's a beauty there. This fact that Christ was not forced to the cross outside of his own will, but out of joy set before him. The word in 53 verse 11 is out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This was a, a willful act on behalf of Christ in alignment with the will of the Father to redeem people like you and me. I, I see all of these things with joy, too. But the detail here in this passage, um, to me, says, first of all, how much God wants us that he was willing to do this. And then it also, to me, um, is such a clear picture of his sovereignty. Because all of these details about what would happen Amazing. 700 years later, he knew this from the beginning. And we know it, but he told us, he told us long before it happened, all of these specifics. And so if we doubt for a minute that he knows everything that's happening, we can look at Isaiah. Mm, so good. So, to just, we can gain so many different treasures looking at a biblical text, and one of them we can gain from this text is to, to stand in awe of the sovereignty of God who purposed all this and made it known in writing 700 years before it happened, down to such detail. Unbelievable. More clear, I think, than almost anything in the New Testament putting the whole story together. Oh, right. Why it was suffering, his suffering, why it was suffering, what happened, how people interpreted it. The whole picture is there. That's good. Just Isaiah in 15 verses packages us this whole, the whole story, even in a, um, well, it, it certainly in a more compact way than we see in any of the gospel accounts. All the passion narratives are stretched out over multiple chapters, and in each of them, each author is identifying different elements that some, many of which are identical, but a number of which are distinct to each author. Well, there's an interpretation here that you only get from Paul that you don't actually get the gospel without that thing. That's good. That's good. Yeah, it strikes me you guys are working on commentaries. <laughs> Isaiah was working on a commentary of a book that hadn't been written. <laughs> 
good. That's, that's really good. And it's very short. It's amazing. <laughs> 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 to that, you, know, you mentioned substitutionary, yeah, and you know, I think more arresting than this guy's world of Russian is substitutionary death. Because I mean, this is all what we deserve. It started to sound like Ephesians. We were by nature objects of wrath. And I think Isaiah's audience clearly rejected that. We're God's chosen people. Right. Um, How do we deserve this? To feel the weight that we are objects of wrath. So, so important. What really stands out to me in verse 11 uh, the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It immediately brings me to the garden of the Gethsemane. And the anguish that he was in, and how his father brought him comfort by seeing the glory that he had for him um, and the, um, you know, the, the church being his bride, that, that future glory uh, just really bringing him comfort. It's just In the context of Isaiah 53, um, well, if you look at verse 12 on my handout and compare it to your ESV or your NIV, you'll see a little bit of a difference. Um, the, the thought that we as a people were part of the glory that motivated Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. That part of the disposal of the reward is not just that he would um, he would that God would divide him a portion with the many as if he's one of many others who get the reward but that the many might be his reward is, is how I'm proposing that we interpret it that the strong are actually the spoil that he secures in light of his great victory done at the cross, and that's us. That the many in this text is a predominantly Gentile world that have been saved through amazing suffering. And that satisfied Christ in the midst of the garden. That was enough to keep him going in the midst of, I mean, it's, it's portraying in his humanness such a massive depth of anguish. Um, I have, I, I, I struggle pausing to try to think what I would be like knowing that I would be martyred within the next 24 hours. But his martyrdom is is a martyrdom where he's also going to be bearing the guilt, the wrath of God, of every believer from all time and every place. That the level of that anguish, I, I can't, I don't, I, there's no comprehension. Um, and, and yet there was a joy that moved him to say, not my will, yours be done. It's just awesome. One of the things that uh, has been jumping out at me is most of the Christian church today believes in a general atonement. 
before he died, the sins of everyone. In the same way. Yeah, the same way. And yep. It remains to our faith to actually say this. But if you look at this text, it says that uh, not only will he look at the, uh, his people and be satisfied, but it says he will justify men and he will bear their clearly talking about a particular redemption that most of the Christian church rails against today. A particular redemption. And um, it is worth celebrating this pa this passage is going to celebrate a particular redemption that leaves us saying um, recognizing not because of anything I have done in myself, uh, but because he captured me. Um, it's beautiful. Um, I thought it was an interesting, a number of years ago, I was thinking, and I thought it was uh, kind of interesting, but because God lives outside, of, or exists outside of time, I wonder if there's a sense in which Christ is continually being crucified and resurrected as a current, uh, I'm not trying to even describe it to God, it's like it's always happening continually from the beginning of time until now, obviously he's not under time, but there's got to be a sense in which Christ's suffering is lasting forever in, 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 in God's reality, perhaps. The talking I'm going to offer, here, here's how I would respond to that. It's hard for us to know what's happening in the hypothetical. Right. You know, the, the areas that God doesn't talk about. What, where he does talk about is how we're to think about it in time, that he died once for all, and through that once for all judgment brings salvation for all who will believe. And yet, at the least, we know that the application of that once-for-all judgment is sustainingly in his uh, mind on our behalf over and over and over again. So that every time we sin, we are not seeking to get right with God again, but rather... We are resting in the midst of our sin, and we ask forgiveness, not as if it's fresh, but in light of what has been done once for all in the past, so that we have a God who's 100% for us already, and that reality of his being 100% for us is, is applied every time we're struggling. Indeed, the, the only sins we can conquer are ones that have already been pardoned. And we're continually being washed. Continually being washed and cleansed in ever-increasing ways until we see him face to face and we will be like him. Um, so the significance of this passage as a foundational event in time, it has eternal, lasting ramifications. So that even in the passage we, Pastor Jason, preached from this morning, that if you, if you continue in sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer 
no longer remains for you a sacrifice for sins, only the fearful expectation of eternal judgment. So what's happening in here is the single way to get out of that eternal judgment. This is it. This is the only, only means. And a refusal to recognize the power of this one event, not only to justify, but to sanctify, never per perfection overnight, but a true progression over a lifetime, the refusal to recognize the power of this single event to change us eternally and put us on a new trajectory separates us from the only hope of salvation. It has, what we're, what we're going to be working through has cosmic significance. You know, the thing I can think of in response to his wondering about eternal suffering, no, it doesn't have to be eternal suffering, the eternal suffer. At one point in time, an eternity was poured into it, that's what would be having that lasting impact. Hmm. Lynn? I was thinking about the phrase that said in verse 10, um, so the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And my um, notes in my Bible said that the guilt offering required restitution. And only Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He's so amazing. God would accept his willingness to die for, for us. I am aware of someone who just had cancer come back, and she's really struggling. And I keep thinking of this picture of how destitute we are, how powerless we are, and that love in action isn't just comforting someone, but truly taking their place. And we, unlike this cancer analogy, we're destitute. It's not just a disease that we might have a hope of conquering. We have no hope. And so, without Christ taking our place and bearing our sin and removing it as far as the east is from the west and dispelling it and remembering it no more, we are lost. And um, that whole all in, um, are we going to just trust him with a few things in our life? Are we going to say, <coughs> I'm wasting my faith in you. Take all of me. And just the powerful work that Christ did, that he took all my ugliness and all my ways that I haven't lived up upon himself, that I haven't met his standard, that, that I can't even be in his presence. Yet he loved so much that that he came into our presence and took that all on himself. To just stand in awe of the fact that every, every, every 
wayward thought, every wayward word, every wrong action, every single one, he identifies with. Receiving the wrath of God on behalf of every little detail. That, that there is nothing, nothing that those who trust him have done that cannot be overcome because he addressed every little detail at the cross. And going with what he was saying about uh, Christ remains God, man, throughout eternity, right? He goes back to the Father and feels like he might turn to the Father. He, but he exchanged his Godhead forever to be totally God, totally man. The, the point being made here is that from the incarnation forward, Christ in his essence remains God. He was God beforehand as God the eternal son. He becomes the son of God of salvation history. And yet from this point forward, however we understand it in relation to timelessness, he has a body. He is God-man, fully identified forever with the people that he created. And that lastingness, growing out of this cross and resurrection event, um, has an impact on eternal history. And, and, and so there's this sustained reminder of lion and the lamb that was slain forever. He is the king. He's the one on the throne. He's seated on the throne like a lamb that was slain. So that, that eternalness of, um, from this point forward, nothing is the same. History has been transformed forever. A history that allows for sinners to actually have fellowship with a holy God. Another association I have is thinking about the uh, Philip and the Disfigurement and all of that, the horror and the ugliness of that, 
a link between that and say Romans 8.28 where all things work together for the good where you can't see it at the time and you think, I don't see anything good here. And you see Christ and his suffering and death and say, well, I don't see anything good here. But God, knowing all those things, purposed it and could crush his son knowing that that was the only way that we could be brought back. It had to happen. And so he couldn't have joined you. So exhibit A, that God indeed, for those who believe, and Christ was the ultimate believer. God didn't want Christ to be a Pharisee, perfectly self-reliant. The reason Christ brought great glory to his Father was because he perfectly trusted in him all the time, and that perfect trust gave rise to perfect obedience. And the promise of Romans 8.28 is we know that for all who love him, God works together for good. Works all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And Christ's own life provides exhibit A of the truthfulness of that claim. I don't feel on that. He was 12. Who for the joy set before him and the cross. That is another hope that we have as we go through trials. And it's not only, it, it's hope um, in multiple ways. The fact that for the joy set before him, he endured. Very next line of Hebrews 12 is, so as you, previous verse, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And then, very next line, May we not grow weary and lose heart. But following him as, as an example and allowing that sacrifice to fuel, in light of all that he purchased for us, to fuel our endurance. All right, two more comments and then we're going to... Wow. Well, it's, I keep getting tricked. <laughs> wow, how much time do I have? I didn't teach for 24 hours today. <laughs> okay. I got a, I got a sense. I had the radio on this morning as I was driving from our but, uh, and On NPR, Krista Tippett has this thing on being, or whatever it used to be, something about faith. And she had this woman who was a poet who has had, I mean, it's like listening to a non-believer's journey toward Christ, because you see movement where she, she's moved from absolute disdain for the gospel to hearing about Jesus, wanting no more. And she says to her son, why in the world would, would, did he have to go through that excruciating, disfiguring, awful crucifixion? She just found that repulsive. And her son said, well, Mom, you wouldn't pay any attention if it had been just something, you know, less than that. And I thought that was just an interesting observation by what someone I would consider on the journey, but not arrived at. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't pay any attention if it was just mundane. It, you know, guys. Yeah. You know. I thought that was... So, the, the thought was one reason. One very small reason, yeah. but a legitimate reason why we read of such graphic horror is because it's one of the means 
by which attention is drawn to this amazing text. Um, and until people are willing to read it, they can't find themselves in it. As uh, comforting and as uh, clear this passage seems, it's also my understanding that 2,500 years ago, they had an incredible difficulty trying to reconcile it with the rest of Scripture, and they couldn't fit it. Is that, is that, is that a perspective that's reasonable or not true? The question is, you said 2,500 years ago, so that's the days of Ezra. Somewhere. Somewhere. At the very end of the Old Testament, how well of a grasp did they have of um, not only a triumphant coming king, but one who would only triumph through tribulation? How, how clear of a picture did they have? And uh, the, there are certain things that it seems clear that the prophets understood, and there's other things that they that were still unclear. Um, if you go back to the first lecture of this year, where I talk about Isaiah was written for Christians. In fact, it was written more for us than it was for anybody in Isaiah's day. That that helps give clarity to how only with the coming of Christ, like what Christ does is not only the Spirit of Christ doesn't only give us light, it provides the lens for understanding. Now I understand what this was about. So I think there was clarity that there was, the, this is a person, he's the servant, he's a servant king who will come as a child, he'll be born of a virgin, and yet it hadn't happened for 400 years after 500, 500 years. And I'm sure there was, did we understand that rightly? Um, how are we to understand this? What exactly are we looking for? And trying to put all the pieces together, um, Christ's life provides not only light to an unregenerate heart, awakening an unregenerate heart to actually see beauty in the cross. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. But not only is it light that enlightens a dead heart that's been living in the dark forever, it's also lens in that now that Christ has come, a veil is removed, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14, but it's only removed through Christ. And now we can actually read Moses and read Isaiah fully. Um, on the road to Emmaus, many of the people didn't get it. Jesus had died, and he's walking with these two men in his resurrected body, and they still are grieving. They didn't they missed it. Even Jesus' disciples, as they're approaching Jerusalem, he increasingly tells them the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die, and on the third day he's going to rise. And, and they're not getting it. It's the resurrection that opened, opened eyes and provided lens. Um, 
So <clears throat> bringing that forward to today, am I correct in thinking that I read somewhere that um, Jews who are not Christians, uh, they perhaps would interpret this more in terms of Israel being the suffering Many, many Jews do. They try to read Isaiah 53 as, well, who's the sufferer? Well, it's the servant nation. And there continues to be, they continue to suffer, and um, the Holocaust is a mark on the map of history identifying this kind of suffering. The, but the level of benefit that it brings to others. Well, there's a number of problems. Um, one, the one who's being portrayed in these texts is guiltless in contrast to the way the na Isaiah portrays the nation as full of guilt. The result of this event of suffering which is substitutionary in its very essence, is full atonement, is righteousness on behalf of the many. And if you just look at Isaiah 52, as many were astonished at you, O Israel, I think that's talking about the nations. Verse 15, so she shall sprinkle many nations. The many are nations. And, and then we come to the end of Isaiah 53 to verse 11, and it says, my servant will make many to be accounted righteous. Verse 12, <clears throat> I'll divide him a portion in the many. And then finally, last line of verse 12, he bore the sins of many. I find it very difficult to identify God receiving the suffering of a sinful nation and not saying what's happened to Jews, that they're suffering because they're more sinful than anybody else. My point is simply to say that it's they're a blemished lamb. They're among the lamb that has gone astray. And such lambs cannot serve as substitutes for other sinners. And the result of this sufferer, who is Israel, working on behalf of Israel the person, working on behalf of Israel the people, and it's too like he would only work for them, God will use him as a light to all the nations. Isaiah 49, 3 and 6. That role, that distinct role, I, I, I don't think that the that viewing Israel the people, the Jews as a people, actually <coughs> does service to the text. But I, but I do know, you're right, that many Jews just generally want to read this as a portrait of the substitution, the, not the substitutionary, the suffering realities of God's servant people. So there are Jews who don't read it that way. How do they read it? The question is, if there's Jews that don't read it that way, how do they read it? Some of them believe that it's just focused on the days of Isaiah, where he is the innocent sufferer. He didn't deserve to be killed, but somehow he is 
working in love on behalf of the nation as a whole, indeed on behalf of the nations. And he's going to be dying on behalf of them. Uh, beyond those two options, nation and prophet, um, I'm not familiar with other, other perspectives. Well, <clears throat> look with me at Isaiah 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. You remember Isaiah 11, verse 2? The Spirit of the Lord will rest on this child king, a spirit of wisdom. It's going to cover him, shape him, control him. A spirit of wisdom will be upon this one. My question, though, is what does it mean that he'll be high and lifted up? In your mind, what are the possibilities? I had two of them in my own mind, and I didn't know the answer until I wrestled. I hear in uh, Philippians 2 9 here, and it's almost like that, um, where it talks about because he humbled himself, he'll be exalted. He'll be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. So in that sense, being high and lifted up would be related to pardon? praise, his, his kingly role, or being high and lifted up like the serpent on the pole, John chapter 3. Even as the as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So those were my two options. Is this right off the bat saying he's going to be lifted up on the cross? Or is it he's going to be exalted like a king over all things? Now how might we go about figuring out what Isaiah meant? He uses it in Isaiah 6. What did he say in Isaiah 6? I saw the throne and he was high and lifted up. Okay, you remember that? In the year that King Josiah, no, in the king, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, not Yahweh. I saw the Sovereign One seated on the throne. What was he? The one that was on the throne, high and lifted up. So this phrase shows up only three times. In Isaiah, one is in Isaiah 6, 1, the other one is here, and the other one is in Isaiah 57, 15. Who wants to read that one for me? Isaiah 57, 15. Thanks, Deborah. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Right off the bat, in this text that's going to be devoted to deep tribulation, deep suffering, this text opens by saying, 
with, with a vision of the servant's exaltation. And I don't think it's that he was lifted up on the cross. That the two texts that frame this one, that use the phrase high and lifted up, both of them refer to Yahweh seated on the throne. That's what, is, that's what all of this is about. It's moving. How does he get here? That's the question that's going to be answered in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. How does he get here? Because what he sees is the servant shall act wisely all the way to the point that he is high and lifted up like the king on the throne. That's where he's headed. So I understand everything that follows to be the means by which that's going to happen. Now, now hear me. Jesus is God. He was God and is God. But in humbling himself, he came to take on a nature of a role that he didn't have prior to this. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says... At his resurrection, he was appointed or declared to be the Son of God in power. Or Paul, Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself, even to the point of death, obeying even to the point of death, death on a cross. Now, now God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. The God-man Jesus was an heir to the kingship, but he only became the king. He took the throne so that in Matthew chapter 28, he could say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But that's something that he could say only in Matthew 28, which is his resurrection chapter. That in his humanness, he had not regarded... Equality with God, a thing to be exploited. He wasn't going to make much of it. He humbled himself, and but it was a means by which he would become the king of a saved people. So this text is about that. We want to keep it in mind that this sufferer is not simply suffering on behalf of future saved sinners. He is suffering in order to see himself high and lifted up. He is suffering in order to take his place as the king. This is the means and only means by which he will establish himself, not simply as king of a universe that's all in hell, but king of a universe that includes a people that have been saved by grace. This is his path to kingship. Question about how this plays out in heaven, or in the new creation. Gee, I see Jesus there, and I look up. Yes. Is God the Father still spirit in that we're still alive vision we see? Or so Hiroshi just unpacked for me heaven. <laughs> <laughs> what does it look like tangibly for Jesus to be on the throne on the right hand of his father, 
seed is there. He somehow is God-man in body. Is, is the Father like spirit? Just tell me everything, Hiroshi. And I don't know. Um, of him will all of a sudden awaken in awe of the entire trinity and the father will be there, the son will be there, the spirit will be there and their unity will be brought up into it in a way that none of us have even experienced yet. And it will be in the context of a new earth that somehow is better and more glorious than what we have now. And yet what we have now is giving us a glimpse of that future. And we will forever go deeper in and higher up with ever-present reminders of the past that will awaken within us deeper awe and deeper joy of who he is for us in the present. But I don't know how it's all going to... how all that... all those details. I don't know... I don't know because I don't think the Bible, at least I haven't seen where he actually unpacks it that clearly for us. All right, brothers and sisters. Easter is coming, and we are going to spend some weeks looking at Isaiah 53 further, um, celebrating the means by which Christ became our King. Father, thank you that you are with us. Thank you just for the, the great insights that you filled this room with this morning. I pray you'd be honored in our pursuit of you. In Christ I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.